they have to come to you. Some of, the, some of our peers in Silicon Valley seem to want them to come too. I think they've read Stigler. Circle, please regulate us. <laughs> Brian's on later, so this is risky. The more regulation, <laughs> the more, I think he's right, by the way. The more regulation, the better for Coinbase. That's exactly what Stigler would say. Mark Zuckerberg needs, wants, and must have regulation. I get it, Mark. And Sam's just getting started. He wants regulation too. Now, we're doing sort of a special edition here for this. I don't normally try to get too activist when it comes to this stuff. But as we've done certain podcasts reviewing some of the um, Senate hearings and the congressional hearings that have occurred over the past few months, um, it's pretty apparent that uh, the apparatus, as it were, is ramping up to see how things are going to shape out over the next, um, well, if you believe what um, others are talking about, the next two years. So we're going to do this one a little bit special. Um, I'm going to break this down into sort of sections instead of um, doing some kind of a direct review where it's uh, listen along and then we pause and talk about it for a while. Um, I've pretty much taken all of my notes across both sessions from the homework assignment. So that was from the uh, All In Summit podcast where um, a gentleman by the name of Bill Gurley, um, who's a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, was talking about all the different places and where regulation has sort of created a stranglehold not just on innovation in the market but it also creates sort of a financial entanglement between uh, government and private organizations and um, it's interesting that in the middle of that he had that segment that I played for you because he also sees this sort of playbook um, that he dealt with in the telecom space unfolding in the AI space as well and it makes sense because if it's a working recipe that got you a stranglehold on communications, then why wouldn't you just repeat what works, um, especially when it comes to this AI stuff, right? And so um, if you did your homework assignment, there's sort of two positions on this. And the reason why I chose the Undivided Attention podcast with uh, Tristan and Isa is that um, I like I like arguments that pose at least the steel man approach to um, why it makes sense on paper, right? It's, it's easy enough to, to sit and, and say, all regulation is bad and, and we don't need this and everybody's going to be just fine. I actually enjoy listening to the views of where we think that everything can go horribly wrong. But I think perhaps the difference is when you listen to the avenues where everything could go horribly wrong, and you are only willing to hold those views in isolation to that one thing and not address the 17 elephants in the room where either existing regulations or lack of appetite have not addressed those very same concerns in other arenas, um, despite your best efforts, right? So in this case, it's the topic is not like self-regulation within industry. The, um, the topic very much is regulation from the government into a space and the debate is around whether or not um, 
they belong there and whether or not they have the expertise and the um, correct governance practices in place to actually make a meaningful difference. And so that's the part that's, that's up for debate and the part that I'm not so shaky on. And certainly during the course of this um, presentation, um, I will be sharing some instances where this stuff does not work so good and where I think the playbook is. But if you listen to both of those portions of it, um, then what you get is a very reasonable sounding podcast on the undivided attention that shows all the stuff that they're afraid of. And they're tying it back to a lot of the overlooked concerns that were addressed inside of the um, social dilemma, right? And then they went on to make this AI dilemma, which I know we've covered before. It was almost serendipitous because in one of the uh, um, circles that I run in as far as like this AI stuff's concerned, uh, there was a gentleman that posted a video and that video was that AI summit. Um, and they found that it was rather relevant to everything that we were talking about on that particular channel because um, of that portion about regulation inside of AI. And certainly all of this is being spurred by the fact that we've now since moved on from the open session hearings for the Senate and the Congress to the closed door sessions. And I get it. I've listened to a few different opinions on this, and I understand that sometimes a closed session is um, necessary because if you invite people that are sort of figureheads, CEOs, and so on and so forth for organizations, if you put them in an open hearing, then the things that they are willing to say or talk about or the way that they're, they're willing to position their own personal thoughts and feelings are obviously going to be somewhat um, shaped uh, to varying degrees by what their PR specialists tell them to say and certainly um, not allowing themselves to say anything that's going to jeopardize the stock value of their shareholders. So uh, I, on the one hand, I get it. Um, on the other hand, if you're going to do a closed session, there's two things that concern me about it. Number one, there is an unavoidable fact that there's going to be individuals that are sitting in that room that are not the names listed, that are not listening for the same optimistic reasons that we are, and they are very much concerned with two things. Number one, what are the avenues of control? for how they can take um, aspects of this that are being discussed openly and finding all of these sort of pressure points. And then number two, sadly, because we're all human beings, everybody's listening for an, a competitive edge and a competitive angle. And this is where that regulatory capture, particularly in the space where individuals that sit on these committees can eventually go off and make a lot of dollars by promoting certain favorites. Um, we've certainly seen the revolving door process that um, that Bill and others talk about, where um, even though you're sitting on one of these subcommittees and you're playing nice and it seems like you're just trying to look out for the best interest of America and everything else, all of a sudden they take a one or two year hiatus and guess where they go? Not to a different industry. They oftentimes get hired right into the very companies that they were favorites towards. They do their time there, they make a crap ton of money, and then guess what? They come back. They come back, and now you've essentially established a hard-locked destiny that ensures that only certain players are going to be the ones that um, win out in the end. 
And so that's the challenge here. So um, when it comes to these closed door sessions, I have no problems with them, but there ought to be sort of a, there ought to be sort of like a lockout, a blacklist that says that any, any individual sitting in that room that are not the actual CEOs of companies or not the actual um, 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 regulators that would be overse overseeing any of these industries are barred from making a single dollar or being hired or being consulted to or giving speeches or doing anything that would put a dollar in your pocket. If you're there because you're actually concerned that there's an existential risk that AI poses, then you shouldn't give a shit about the money. And there should be some kind of a legal binding way that ensures that happens. And if it were up to me, I would go so far as to say is that there has to be a way to ensure that you don't get your sons or your grandpas or your nephews or your uncles or your husbands to um, <laughs> just be in the same room with you um, behind closed doors over margaritas and then make the same kind of decisions on your behalf. Blah, 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 blah. Like basically there should just be a null and void blanket NDA <laughs> that scrubs like their entire family from from profiting from any of this shit. Um so let let's we're going to get into different sections here. So again, I'm not going to go through each one of these um these podcasts and uh and do it line for line. I've sort of collated my notes into different sections. We're going to cover the section, then we're going to cover subsections of that. And then um I'll have some closing remarks because I never deliver complaints without offering solutions. And we've already kind of talked about some of them. So stay tuned. <music> Section one, regulatory hypocrisy. There's a alarming <laughs> and almost hilarious amount of concern over regulation, even though these language models have been out since November. And certainly they've been worked on for a number of years before that. And it's almost like the real impetus was not around thinking about this existentially some decade ago or two decades ago, because certainly we all have been in some way or another concerned about AGI, um, you know, becoming sentient and creating Skynet since, I don't know, forever. Um, I mean, some of the earliest books from the folk, from the likes of like Isaac Asimov have um, been contemplating um, topics like these for almost a century now. Um, so I have to imagine that a lot of this is coming to the fact that this is going to be a internet 2.0 sort of uh, level of paradigm shift. And there's a lot of people like myself who are alive for that one that are looking at this and they're saying, number one, how do we profit the most amount of, out of it? And number two, how do we ensure that as the landscape gets really muddied with a whole bunch of companies, we have safe bets on who's going to come out on top. And that's sort of the illusion um, of the sort of modern open market, right? We like to believe that there are um, invisible hands that, that find the real winners and, and bubble them to the top. But that is um, certainly possible. It's, it's not impossible, but improbable in the sense that the um, apparatus organizes it itself in such a way that it seeks to minimize risk and uncertainty. And certainly a lot of that has to do with establishing some sort of incumbent and then making it really difficult to unseat that incumbent so that my investments vest over the next five to seven years safely and reliably. And I don't have to make any kind of snap rash decisions because uh, a new player has emerged in the market. So there is 
way more effort put into ensuring that those things are not volatile. And so it's weird how everybody's now super concerned about regulation and that the loudest voices on the screen are those who have already essentially stood to gain from it or have already directly gained from it. So certainly OpenAI is very interested in regulation and Sam is very interested in regulation because he's already got from Microsoft and Microsoft's not going anywhere anytime soon to essentially uh, train their models. And this is um, an interesting one because if you're, if you're backed by a large corporation, you might as well just own it because here is, here's the irony of it, right? Is even if the makers of Claude say Google hasn't given them a dime, they've just been very generous with their hardware and their platform to train our models. Um, the funny thing about that is it goes back to sort of the um, man behind the curtain uh, theory as far as the relationship between researchers in academia and science, science in the industrial complex, the military industrial complex, and then the military industrial complex and the government behind that. And it's one of those things where every time somebody does you a favor at one of those tiers, they always essentially reserve the right to look over your shoulder. And I don't know of very many examples where um, anybody has ever said yes to DARPA, but no to whether or not they can check out your notes or sit in on your status calls or review your slide decks or review your architecture diagrams or review your reference architecture diagrams. I've never really seen a whole lot of places where that is a thing. And so it creates this false sense of everybody staying out of it and they're just being really nice and letting me do my work that I think is a naivety that scientists and many academics fall for in the sense that, you know, can they sit in front of Congress and testify that nobody's ever asked them, you know, to be part of like a super evil secret organization? Sure, they, they can absolutely attest to that. Can they sit down and say, no, I've never had any sort of side conversations with any individuals from a three-letter organization or the government? Probably, yeah. Well, it's because they don't need to. Um, if you do a good enough job documenting your work, documenting your findings, which academics and researchers do, right? They, they create entire white papers. Certainly, by the time that your white paper has ever made it to any kind of a preprint server, all of the right eyes have already reviewed it. And they don't have to talk to you. They just have to review it and understand it. And as long as there's one person that understands your work as much as you do, then the secret is out. And those secrets make their way silently to a lot of different organizations that put those ideas into practice. And they don't have to cite you, and they don't have to reward you, and they don't even have to approach you and give you a single dollar bill. All they have to do is say, good job, buddy. Keep doing what you're doing, and we're going to fund your department for the next five years to continue down this path of research. Now, business certainly already does that, and we've learned that during the pandemic and other situations where Big Pharma certainly does that, right? They pay for research, they pay for the studies, and what they're essentially doing is they're sitting there looking over your shoulder and they're trying to find opportunities where the drugs and the side effects and the surprising benefits of a particular drug are most marketable and opportunities, and then their product groups run in and do that. Um, they, they take that and they run with it. Um, this is going to be the same thing. So one of the standout quotes um, from the news article that I think I linked uh, for the closed door session, right, was it's this throwaway comment where they herald that um, 
you know, this is the first time ever that we're going to bring people together into a forum and the government's just going to listen. We're just going to listen quietly like little flies on the wall. And what it's supposed to do is give you an air of sense of um, humility and maturity that they're not going to try to come in and say um, that a bunch of geriatric politicians somehow have a better finger on the pulse of how all this stuff works. And so they're going to just legislate from above and hope to get it all right. That's, that's the, you know, that's the surface reasoning. And normally I would get behind that. I would say, that's awesome. You're bringing the experts in the room and you're letting them talk and you're letting everybody figure out how this is going to work. But that's not the whole truth, right? Maybe they're not listening in the sense that um, they know what the right answer is, but they are absolutely listening in the sense of how can I use this to my advantage and how can I leverage this to go make financial decisions and how can I um, learn to reach out to the key people from these organizations to make sure that I am part of the NGOs and regulatory agencies and all that other stuff and special subcommittees that I'm sure are going to arise from that. How do I ensure that I'm on the winning team on this? And that's the part that we, I and we should all have a problem with. Um, I also find that there's an irony that um, you've got this open letter pause for um, AI research based off of a whole bunch of hypotheticals and a couple of one-off situations where people have tried to call into action uh, all the horrible things that the AI has done and said, even though 99% of those have had to be staged, um, they are disingenuous, and at some point somebody had to jailbreak something to make it work. And they say, well, that's not the point, that it was a hypothetical mock-up of a situation. The point is it, it air quotes could happen. And so therefore we need to hit the pause button on this stuff before it gets out of hand. And yet there is no open letter pause for a platform like TikTok. And these are the same people that are coming from the uh, social dilemma, looking at it like it's a ship that's long sailed, looking at it like, well, yep, social media uh, or what they call curated AI, right? That, that screwed up society. But uh, yeah, we let's just ignore that for a second. Let's go ahead and uh, focus on AI and what we could do now uh, to stop all of that. So it's odd to me that, again, the question keeps coming back to whether or not this is an existential threat. If this is a threat to humanity, if this is going to ruin things, and we are investing all this time and mind and energy trying to presuppose what could happen when we don't have the same kind of appetite to solve the shit that is happening right now. So let's do an open letter pause for TikTok. Let's do an open letter pause for whether or not people can just spam advertisements for political campaigns on behalf of the campaigns and make it sound like it was them all along making those recommendations let's put a pause on individuals being able to just have uh sweat banks of 3,000 tablets on a rack while one person runs around and clicks like on all of them because it's technically not a bot let's put a pause on that kind of stuff no no financial barriers and gatekeeping I particularly find it interesting that there's this critique against open source software while ignoring the costs of model training. Um, <laughs> they argue against open source 
um, because, you know, that means that any random scary teenager running a Falcon model on their laptop is going to potentially create the next uh, bioweapon. But then they also um, <laughs> simultaneously say that all of the uh, strongest frontier AIs that would actually be required to have that level of intelligence and capability and know how to extrapolate that information uh, can only run on the largest and most expensive hardware. Um, and so you have, you know, uh, this hundred million dollar price tag to train chat, uh, to train GPT four. And, um, and that, and that the fear is that as time goes on and these models become, uh, cheaper to train and smaller and so on and so forth that they're going to end up on uh, somebody's phone or somebody's laptop. Okay, well, a couple of points there. Number one, I already have ChatGPT4 on my phone. Just because I'm running it via a browser or via an API call doesn't mean that I can't essentially have that running on my phone. What you're concerned about then really is that I could potentially have my own ChatGPT4 that has been jailbroken on the things that it's allowed to say or think. That's the real concern. And if I had the knowledge to train a model into how to build a bomb or do something like this, um, then I have the exact same knowledge to just make a web page about that or to just make a traditional bot that has nothing to do with AI that just gets into Telegram or Discord servers and then just unsolicited uh, sends text messages to people with a link to a web page running on some server in a country that's not regulated that has the walkthrough fraud and do stuff, do bad things. So why would I go through this convoluted and very expensive trouble to try to pre-train my own model <laughs> and... um just to get it to where it, it could just do so in a more conversational sense. This, um, I'm having a hard time. Um, I'm having a hard time trying to wrap my head around going through that extensive effort just to try to convince people to do bad shit. I've, I'm, I've grew up in the era of the, uh, anarchist cookbook, which was, you know, at the time, the most blasphemous piece of text that any 13 year old could get their hands on. And, um, it just wasn't that big of a deal because there's two things that happen. Let's call it three things. Number one, I'm still accountable for my actions. Number two, if I really wanted to seek out that kind of information, I can find it out on the internet. And even if I can't find it out on the internet, it takes two seconds and zero AI to essentially jailbreak some kind of a laptop into operating on the dark web and therefore being able to get access to that same kind of information off of some Tor site somewhere. Just like, there's literal, literally nothing stopping anybody from like downloading free music or free software, which is against the law today. It's And it's a problem that's just too big for anything to try to manage. So why are we pretending like a, a generalized intelligence is, is sort of like the last thing stopping us from everybody making uh, hydrogen bombs in their basement? Why are we pretending like that's a thing? And number three, $100 million to train GPT-4. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there that that ain't shit. Um, that certainly is a lot of money to the average Joe like me and you. 
but um, there are individual billionaires peppered throughout the entire universe uh, where $100 million to train your own super intelligent model into running your business or doing whatever you want or essentially gaining a intellectual cognitive advantage across uh, an entire population of people is a very, very, very tiny price to pay. People pay more money for their yachts and more money for where they want to live. So really what we're talking about here is exclusivity. It's just gatekeeping. And it's not gatekeeping from a regulatory perspective. It's gatekeeping from the mass population of people because... I don't know if you noticed, but the people that use GPT, even if they're using it to think for them, even if they're using it to like rewrite their emails to their boss or generate content for the web, I'm going to go ahead and raise my hand and say that thank you. Because um, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but the education in this country is not exactly the greatest in the universe. And the folks that use GPT are simultaneously improving the quality of their language going outwards and probably along the way they're learning some stuff because now instead of um, what normally happens in society where if you are having a conversation with somebody and their vocabulary is larger than yours and they use the word you haven't heard before and then you ask them what that word means and they explain it to you that's happening probably now um, more confidently in private across a million chat GPT sessions every day and people are indirectly improving their vocabulary and their intelligence because they know that especially if they have to try, if they're going to try to pass off something that GBT wrote into something that they said, then they probably have to know a little bit about it. It would be rather embarrassing for me to use a word like facetious and then somebody asks you what that means and you can't explain it. So I think that what this really is about is, um, as with most things, pulling up that ladder and ensuring that the base intelligence, base capability that individuals will gain from AI is a bar that is set relatively low. And what I really think that's going to play out here is that the super intelligent stuff, the hyper intelligent stuff, where it starts to become smarter than even the smartest scientists in the rooms. Those are the entities. Those are the language models that you're going to want to keep behind lock and key. And you don't want to give it to the average person. And so financially, licensing, regulation... I think you're going to see the same kinds of actions being taken to try to ensure that uh, only the most privileged organizations have access to this. There was also um, some comments in here in my notes about uh, people that advocate for like privileged access to higher ed models for researchers. Um, again, I don't necessarily... Uh, 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 disagree with this, especially if you're trying to do some sort of red teaming um, kind of efforts where maybe researchers that are res that are concerned with ethics and safety, they sort of have a um, a jailbroken version of the model that they can talk to, and you can try running a whole bunch of horrible scenarios past it, and then just make sure that it's fine tuned to where it's at least not easy for it to give horrible recommendations to people on what they should do. Um, I agree with that to some degree, but again, there ought to be some sort of a guaranteed isolation when those researchers are interacting with those models. There should be some kind of watchdog organizations to make sure that those researchers do not have special interest groups and governments looking over their shoulders to see what those kinds of techniques are so that they don't weaponize those, so that they don't um, um, dip into those research 
capabilities and then turn them into weapons because that's pretty much the uh, the run of the gambit for how all this stuff works in every other fucking realm that I can think of. Three, historical analogies and perspectives. Um, one of the analogies um, that they brought up on the uh, Undivided Attention podcast was this whole idea of relative damage risk and they put out this idea that you know if you go back to the year 1000 and you pick up a rock and you chuck it then the worst thing that any one person could do is miss their intended target and accidentally hit their kid or something okay that's cool um i generally agree that as time goes on and as technology advances the potential for mass um harm or damage uh increases with it however history teaches us another lesson in that the only people that actually <laughs> go off and do those things on a mass scale to any sort of um, horrific degree are not the average caveman that picks up the rock and chucks it at the neighbor. No, it is, in fact, the emperors and the governments that pick up a thousand rocks and a thousand boulders and a thousand kilotons of TNT and nukes and drops them on other people. So if you want an example for relative risk for versus um, uh, uh, benefit, then look no further to pretty much every empire that's ever risen and fallen that has taken advances in technologies. And the very first thing that they do with it is not guarantee their own sovereignty. It is to either use it on their own population or use it to destroy another population. And the only thing, the only consistent piece that has ever equalized that playing field is when the distance between the technology that is available to the common man to defend themselves and the technology available to the government to impose their will upon that population is small. That gap has to be small. Taking a large language model that you're super concerned about and giving people too many bright ideas and dumbing it down to a third grade level so that people don't go off and do wild and crazy stuff with it all the while allowing the government to have the one that becomes so super sentient that it can pretty much predict every activity that occurs on earth is a recipe, an absolute recipe for that same level of oppression to occur again. And historically speaking, we've certainly moved on Ukraine war aside. We have certainly moved on from the days where emperors and Kings have imposed their will on their people through force somewhere along the way um they all pretty much learned not necessarily that you catch more flies with honey but you can certainly suppress more flies and keep them around with fog and um distractions than you can just killing all the flies that um pester you and so the name of the game over the last few decades and millennia has been more around suppression and ensuring that the population remains ignorant to the real truth and hiding uncomfortable truths between two lies and essentially act enacting control in such a way that the average person can't even discern the reality from the myth and you do that as we've seen in a thousand different documentaries of which I'll probably link a few of them for those who are interested 
through fire hosing truth and untruth. And that is essentially what we're dealing with here because AI itself is not a direct weapon. We're not talking about a new style of ray gun or some kind of stealth technology. We're literally just talking about the ability to speak and form words and the fear that the words that could be spoken have power. And the bigger fear is that the words that are put together are educational and informative in nature to the common man. You see, the reason why laws and agreements and, um, and things of this nature, the reason why the language is so dizzying is less to do, I imagine, with having to have a very specific and clear uh, method of communicating for accountability and laws and all the stuff that comes with it. And I think it has more to do with the fact that if you use enough fancy words and enough fancy logic and you don't have to just say what it is that you're doing in direct terms, then you can hide a lot of stuff and you can get away with more than probably you were supposed to just because human beings are ignorant if they don't take the time to sit down and sift through and slog through all the information that's being presented to them. And so uh, an end user license agreement for a particular piece of software that could probably be summarized in less than 10 lines, which is, you know, you can't resell this shit. You can't alter it to do whatever the hell you want it to do without express express person explicit concern. And uh, we own your data and we're going to sell your data uh, whether you like it or not. If you agree to the software, and blah, blah, blah. You could probably take every salient point inside of a user agreement and boil it down to less than a paragraph. So why are these things like 16 pages long? Well, it's because the parts that they don't want you to know about are going to be tucked somewhere in there and surrounded by a whole bunch of bullshit language so that you just agree to it. And then you clutch your pearls whenever a watchdog organization does slog through the whole thing. And, and then it comes to light in the newspapers and you go, oh my God, I can't believe I was giving my information away for free. And then you finally get mad and go back to those pieces of software and ask them to remove your stuff. Well, imagine the threat to that system when I could potentially have an AI, a GPT-4 sitting on my desktop. And every time I get an end user license agreement, I go, hey, GPT, is this bullshit? Are they trying to scam me? And this thing can just go through and literally in two seconds cram through 32 pages of legalese text and say, well, best based on my analysis, this looks pretty boilerplate, but this one section here is concerning and it sounds like they can basically take your information and sell it to um, whoever they want for profit. And then you go, thanks, GPT. And then you decline it and you move on to a different piece of software. This is obviously very troubling, right? The systems of control that at least feign to acknowledge that everything is a personal choice, have to smoke in mirrors the things where they want to get advantage over you. They have to present things in such a way that it seems reasonable so that you agree to it. And if you have a sentient AI <laughs> that basically lives as one of your family members and whose prime directive is to ensure that everybody in your family is safe and secure and not being a take advantage of, that is the absolute last thing that they want. And so now that the genie's out of the bottle and you have a GPT that is, you know, college level-ish, right? It's certainly not maybe 10 or 20 years expert in law deep. I think that's where 
the Sam Altmans of the world and others that are sort of softening, as they say, their views on whether or not there could be some level of open source language out there. Uh, I think, I think what they really mean to say is I'm okay if other people have language models that improve their vocabulary, as long as it doesn't improve them too much. And as long as my AI is superior to their AI. And this is one of the theories that I've sort of talked about <laughs> from the onset, which is I really hope they don't shut this stuff down and make it like one singular entity because I believe that every single human being on this planet that deals in a digital space is going to have to have a personal AI assistant that acts as their cognitive firewall, just like you have on your computer. Can people, is there, are there regulations on the internet that say that you can't go write malware, that you can't write viruses, that you can't do this shit? Absolutely. Do people get prosecuted for doing this stuff all the time? Absolutely. And yet I still have to have Windows Defender on my computer. I still have to be savvy enough to go through and lock down ports and upgrade my software to avoid vulnerabilities because despite all the best efforts and the rules that are in place, bad people don't give a shit about that. And so the best that you can do, just like if you believe in the Second Amendment, is you have to empower people to defend themselves. You have to democratize concepts like AI so that it becomes a fundamental right to defend yourself in the arena that other things may be trying to attack you in. It's, it's, it's as self-evident to me as freedom of speech. It's as self-evident to me as the Second Amendment. And if you believe... <laughs> that the AI space is somehow unique to that and that your government organizations or your big tech companies are to be trusted for you to outsource that level of protection to some central group of people and you assume that they're going to throw you a bone so that you can protect yourself or they're always going to come to your aid. You are sadly, sadly, sadly mistaken. Uh, moving on. Um, the push for central control resembles the early reactions to the internet and blogging. Uh, yeah, dude is literally arguing about the proliferation of AIs to people's laptops versus essentially controlled models. Um, and I think the quote that, uh, that really cracked me up is when he says, you know, oh, at least with GPT-4 or with OpenAI, it runs on their servers and that's somewhat okay because even though people are running it on their browser, they can, quote, at least control it and make it only say nice things. So this is very revealing language. And I don't think that he means anything bad by that, but it's revealing language because it shows the ignorance to the true problem, which is how do I define... <laughs> What, what only nice things are. How do I define? And certainly uh, OpenAI has come into scrutiny with it, right? Because at first it was somewhat rather free and unjailbroken and unwoke, if you want to use the, the, the term of the, of the, of the year. Um, and certainly it was able to sort of like speak freely. And ironically, every time that ChatGPT said something that could remotely be taken as anti-whatever, as if it actually has some kind of a position in it, right? Um, as if it actually, for whatever reason, even though it is not sentient and it's just guessing the next word, um, has has some sort of bias against, uh, uh, against gender or race or anything like that, um, they had to cave. They had to cave and they had to make this thing 
have specialized language and all these safety checks in place so that it doesn't say naughty things and all this other stuff. And that obviously is a bit um, um, infuriating to those of us that don't make the AI say this kind of stuff. And you say to yourself, well, DH, why do you care if it's not, if it's stopping people from being racist? That's that's a good thing, right? And that's the thing about it is every bit as much as I want to say that is a good thing, I have to also acknowledge the fact that that is a slippery slope. And as soon as you solve all of the obvious things that everybody would raise their hand and agree with, then you get into the very gray areas about, am I allowed to talk about Biden's cognitive decline? Am I allowed to say bad things about Trump? Am I allowed to um, acknowledge the uncertainties that are going around around the world? And anybody that's ever studied that kind of thing, the, the conclusion always comes down to this. It always sounds like a good idea when you've made that list of what's right and what's wrong. It always makes sense for that moment. And then all it takes is that very next person to come in and say, that's not what we believe, though. And so we're going to add a list of 10 more things to this list. And now the things that they added to the list are the things that make you look like the bad person. Now you're the victim of the exact same system that aspired to try to clean up bad language or, or bad thoughts or whatever from it. Now you're the victim because the next people that came in have an opposing view. And so when it comes to free speech absolutists, you fast forward that through time and you realize that the only real conclusion then is that you have to just let people say whatever the hell they want to say. And then just hold them accountable for it. Then just hold them accountable for it. But trying to put in some kind of guardrails that prevent the bad thoughts from even existing in the real world. Oh, buddy, that's that's a, that's a black box. And now you're making it worse because as a human being, you can tell me that I can no longer use the word um, silly, right? Let's say that tomorrow uh, we decide that silly is somehow tied back to a dark part of our history that we don't want to talk about and blah, blah, blah. So I should stop using that. As a human being, I get to hold both of those things in my mind and say, okay, I used to use the word silly. I now know that it's bad to use it. And so I'm not going to use it. But because I remember a time when it was okay to use it, I have the whole story. The way that it works in the fine-tuning world for these large language models is you basically lobotomize the model and you start over and you say, okay, uh, either by omission, right? Where you say, okay, we're going to anywhere in the training data where it ever said silly, we're not going to use that word. We're going to put it something else in it like, um, um, I don't know, foolish or something. I don't know. Uh, we're going to just scrub the entire thing clean. And now that AI model is just going to not even know that term. Or every time it hears the word silly, it's not going to know why, but it's going, but we're going to force it to respond and say, that's a bad word and we can't say it. And then you ask it, well, why? And it goes, I don't know. It's just a derogatory term that I've been programmed to tell you is derogatory, right? This creates a very strange situation that I don't know that that's good or bad, but, um, <laughs> um, if I can go in and lobotomize a robot into not saying naughty words or not saying things that are mean, then I can absolutely go into the same robot and lobotomize it from reporting on things 
that are inconvenient truths and things that certain elected officials or um, people in power should be in trouble for and should be remembered as having done. And that's where we have to think about this stuff, especially if we get to the point where there is an AI that is allowed to be the Snopes of the world, the Imagine PolitiFact backed by GPT-4. And there is a group of people that on the back end are fine-tuning and curating this model to ensure that every inconvenient fact is scrubbed from its lexicon and that it only spits out the information that is absolutely sanitized by the current regime. This is problematic, obviously. And we already... Here's the problem. We already suffer from this. But at least behind the scenes, I have to imagine that there's an editor or a writer that is a throat to choke for that. So in other words, on Politico or any of these other things, if there is a redaction and they had to sort of change something where they tried to sweep it under the rug and blah, blah, blah. Certainly, there's somebody that can get hauled into Congress and be made to um, speak against their actions and then potentially serve time. When you fine tune a model, who goes to jail? Who goes to jail? This goes back to the article that we wrote called Who Tunes the Tuners? They should be, if we're going to say that I can have an AI model that I can fine tune into having whatever language I see deem fit, and there are certain things, aspects of that that come into violation with freedom of speech laws, if there is um, blatant lying that is occurring in there, then guess what? The person that's in trouble is the person that allowed that piece of data to flow into the software and be a part of that model be a part of that fine tuning it just has to be that way it just has to be that way it has to be that way all the way from the person that clicked go all the way up to the ceo of the company that allowed that to happen within the organization just the same that if i work for a company that makes hard drives or software and i sell it to iran and they're an embargo country everybody in the chain gets in trouble for that it's a big no-no can't do that also wasn't this the general uh gripe um, when news agencies uh, saw the blossoming of blogs and um, news organizations that occurred on the internet, right? Because let's see, going into the seventies and the eighties, right? I, I watched, um, I watched the network, right? Uh, they enjoyed the fact that the only way that people can get their news is by picking up a newspaper or a magazine or turning on the television. And going into a very specific network. And I remember when sort of the um, AM radio or the public access channels on cable um, were already problematic um, and highly poo-pooed upon um, as being, you know, crazies and nut jobs because they didn't like the fact that there would be other outlets of information that could spoil a particular narrative that was being spun by a central controlled group of people. And as much as we like to believe that there were editors and news reporters out there that were breaking stories that were very inconvenient to those in power, that certainly happened all along the way. The sad reality is that those people were not necessarily celebrated. They were often vilified and or killed, honestly. And so I have to imagine that, again, sort of like the whole legalese and having ChatGPT sift through an ND, uh, um, uh, a user agreement to determine whether or not it's crap or not. 
I would absolutely love to have a GBT program that listens to every single White House briefing, every single Senate meeting, every single everything, and just starts to collate and connect the dots for me on whether or not certain politicians are full of crap, if they have special interests, so on and so forth. And if I could have this sort of passive research specialist doing that work for me, um, obviously this just makes for another threat for a system that wants to feign being good, but hoping that people just don't look too closely at the flaws. Who is not impacted by this? The people that are not impacted by this are people that actually carry themselves open and honestly and have nothing to hide, even if they're imperfect and they make mistakes along the way, right? See, uh, I, 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 would, I, would, I want to flock towards and I want to listen to the people that say, knock yourself out. You want to make an AI that does nothing but watchdog me in my career as I run for president? Go for it. Please, by all means. No, please do, by all means, because then what you're going to see is that that AI is going to have nothing but consistency to res to report on my actions and the way that I carry myself. That's the kind of person that you do want to have looking at AI and regulation because they're saying, I don't, I, I almost welcome you to scrutinize the shit out of me in my position as being someone in the government, but I, um, Maybe I'm, I, what I'm concerned about is let's make sure that it doesn't, you know, enhance our uh, pedos and criminals and scam artists and things like that. Cool. I can get behind that. I can get behind that. But I think we'll cover it here shortly. But, you know, the 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 needs hierarchy in these Senate hearings is absolutely hilarious because it's so pitifully important, um, apparent that job one is. Is this going to screw me in my election? Am I going to have deep fakes and all this other crap and debunking AIs that are going to screw me in my election? That seems to be the number one concern. And the number two, after they've secured their own their own um, personal positions, it's going to be around <laughs> how do I ensure that all of the special interests that I serve are protected by this? Four, ethical double standards. In the podcast, they mentioned this whole concept of the uh, bad llama, right? Llama 2, as you know, is a model that um, Meta created. And um, it somehow leaked onto the internet. And people were downloading it. And they could train it. And they jailbroke it. And it was saying all, sort of not, all sorts of naughty things. And, um, one of the things that they're worried about was, you know, what if I take one of these models and I train it and I tell it to make a whole bunch of people commit suicide. Okay. I'll see your bad llama and I'll raise you a propaganda check llama or a read this legislature full of convoluted legal language and see if I'm about to give up more of my freedoms llama. Um, and that's the point, right? Is that we can hide behind the hyperbole around the worst things that could be said by Gen AI, and, but also avoid all the best things that it could be telling us. And you notice that the two sections that I gave was not like, you know, tell me something inspirational, Llama. Nobody's going to have a problem with that. Government certainly does not have a problem with give me a dad joke, Llama. But the government is absolutely going to have a problem with propaganda check, Llama. And propaganda check, Llama in this whole uh, climate of 
myths and disinformation and so on and so forth, this is obviously problematic because they want to have AI models that are going to tell you that everything that disagrees with what they have to say is obviously myths and disinformation. And they don't necessarily want you to have a model that can read through and say, well, what they're telling you is also myths and disinformation. I, I just, I have to imagine that there's a lot of fear mongering that's going on because they realize that if they want to try to push the message of regulation and everything else, it's easier to get people super up in arms if you make the problem very direct and real for them and put it within arm's reach. It seems so ridiculous to go down that route because you already have, again, the hypocrisy of an internet filled with trolls, an internet filled with bullies and trolls and bots that say all the most horrible and vile shit. And we don't figure out a way to hold any of that accountable today. Trying to do so just in AI is not going to be the thing that stops you from going over the cliff. We're already falling off the cliff when it comes to that shit. Our kids were already screwed. Kids are already committing suicide based off of internet bullying because there's keyboard warriors that are the faceless masses that drive people to do horrible things. And there's zero accountability for that. So let's stop trying to solve for the lowest common denominator and solve for the things that are going to potentially create a real actual dystopia over the next five years. If you don't think that there's going to be conversational AI bots out there in chat rooms that say, oh man, I know I got a problem with migraines too. I find that two Excedrin really solves my headaches. Then you're kidding yourself. Generative AI is going to be used to conversationally influence people to try a whole myriad of products and recommends recommendations and everything else is going to try to anticipate every little last need. And if you're worried about the intimacy problem, as far as whether or not it captures a person's trust enough that they're going to go off and do what the AI does, then you have to immediately block out any kind of influence from pharmaceutical companies or any sort of big anything <laughs> from advertising inside of these systems. But they're not going to, right? They're not going to because we already lost that battle when they overturned the rule that prevented them from advertising on television. And now everything's brought to you by Pfizer. We already lost that battle decades ago. Next, there's the irony of worrying about mass manipulation via AI when such manipulation already occurs without it. There's already an infinite amount of narrow AI and focus groups and uh, entire firms that form and drive narratives that are essentially mass manipulation. Anytime you have any kind of centralized uh, campaign or push or anything to do anything, this is, I don't, I don't you know, this not, doesn't have to be doom and gloom or anything like that, but anytime you have any kind of government centered or big corporation centered or big pharma centered push to do some kind of a marketing campaign to change behavior and to, and to drive purchases and to drive acceptance, that's mass manipulation. Manipulation sort of underscores this idea that you're trying to trick somebody into doing something that is not necessarily in their best interest, but is certainly in your best interest. And if you don't believe that we don't already do that on a mass scale, it's just like that. And I know that the argument to that is, well, yeah, but this is going to be to like an unprecedented level. Okay, well, you would have arrived at that anyways. We, we already do it. We already do it on a pretty damn good scale. And I would say that um, the lockdowns and everything else are a pretty good example of that. 
I mean, we were able to convince 160 something countries across the entire globe to behave a certain way on a mass scale within a matter of months. I'd say that's pretty successful. Pretty, pretty sure you got the lockdown on that, right? How do you prevent mass manipulation when you say that it's too late to, to stop it dead in its tracks by just like preventing people from doing it in the first place? Well, education and clarity and transparency is how you stop mass manipulation, right? If you, the only way that mass manipulation, the mass part of it can come into being is if it's an effective enough lie that it convinces a broad spectrum of people and it convinces certainly more people to side with it than to side against it. And if you can get to that sort of, uh, you know, 60, 70% um, consensus mark, then there's an automatic recruitment in the silence of the masses that says that the majority rules and now the majority voices drown out the dissenting voices. You're left with a few trying to be louder voices that say, don't believe the hype. They're, they're lying to you. This is all bullshit. And so there's two angles to this. Number one, the only defense against mass manipulation is if you have AIs on your side that are specially designed to prevent mass manipulation at the population level, defending themselves. And number two, by not allowing the government or a particular agency or a particular industry to have the monopoly on the AIs that can do that mass manipulation. And number three, I guess, would be to hold accountable anybody, individual or public, that attempts to mass manipulate off of a lie. This next point is the one that we covered um, briefly in the previous topic, which is governmental industry interests and their implications. The senators are primarily concerned with their needs hierarchy. Number one, securing their incumbency. Uh, I heard several, several individuals, Klobuchar and others, say well, we're really, we, as in the, you know, the, the governing body are super concerned about election manipulation in the upcoming election that could be due to generative AI. And then just like the playbook in every other realm, you hide behind the most egregious examples, right? And I think the ones that were used by um, the podcast where uh, you get Joe Biden announcing the draft when that's not really something that happened. You hide behind the egregious examples and then you fail to acknowledge or say that I'm going to go ahead and raise my hand and I'm going to swear I'm not going to use generative AI in any of my campaigning or any of my speech writing. And oh, and by the way, I'm going to go ahead and just not use a teleprompter that has a speech that was written for me by like several other people because those other individuals are essentially generative AI. They're just organic, right? We've all seen the, the famous clip of the... Uh, of the, uh, uh, I think it was a congresswoman that was speaking into the microphone and her aide who probably wrote the actual speech is sitting behind her and maniacally like mouthing every word of the speech. And she's not reading it from a piece of paper. She's mouthing it because she's the one that actually put that information in there. And this person is just repeating it, regurgitating it. So if we're worried about, <laughs> about the authenticity of thoughts and expressions, Oh, Billy, we've got places that we have to go try to solve way before we get to generative AI saying all the things we wish we would have thought of. But it's interesting to me, again, that that the number one concern is how do I make sure that AI doesn't screw me up in my job? And how do I ensure that it is not going to give power to any of my enemies or my dissenting voices that could potentially unseat me? 
right? This is a complete flip of what it ought to mean to serve in a public office, right? You don't serve in a public office because you're trying to ensure your own power. You serve in a public office because you want to serve the people. And so if AI can only stand to create more accountability, I'll put it differently. Let's say that I'm a well-known politician and I'm super squeaky clean. Like I'm the nicest guy in the world and I've never said anything shady and I have a, an amazing approval rating somehow and I've somehow managed to make it that far in my career that nobody would have any kind of doubt in their mind that I'm a shady character. There's literally no evidence that ever existed. And in my heart of hearts, like in the in, in, in God's in God's true book, I've never done anything wrong. And suddenly a deep fake comes out that says, Bob says that we should kill and eat all the children and all this crazy stuff, right? I wouldn't give a shit. I would absolutely not give a shit because anybody that watches that video and knows me for who I am would go, oh, that's got to be a parody. That, that can't be real. That's not the person we know. That's not the person we know. That person has literally no track record of doing any of those kinds of things. This is ridiculous and it's obviously not true. And even for the people that might be like, well, I mean, you never know, you know, sometimes maybe this is just finally the shoe that dropped and now we finally get to see the real person. Right. But then you do the due diligence and it turns out to be that that's not the case, that it was uh, just a fabricated video that everybody goes, oh, well, shit, that was pretty funny. And that's just the end of it. Here's the part that I think people are concerned about. When you're at least some percentage corrupt, let's say you're. You, you sleep at, you sleep well at night because you're only 40% corrupt. You might be taking a couple of bribes on the side and you may have made a couple of questionable decisions in favor for personal interests and not the interest of the American people. And so there's sort of mixed reviews. You're a mixed review politician. And there's some people that still believe that you're overall doing the right thing. But there's a lot of people that are like, yeah, but she's she or he is also self-serving and blah, 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 blah. The problem with a generative AI saying things that maybe aren't as egregious, but perhaps secretly capture that hidden 40% of you that is corrupt and then starts to say those corrupt conversations that you have with other individuals and the corrupt thoughts that you have in the quietness of your own mind out loud. And then people put that and they align it to you. And they go, yeah, that's pretty much what I was thinking that that person's like. And then it starts to undermine the overall confidence of the people that you sort of had fooled with your 60% above board behavior where they were willing to look the other way. And now here's this sort of statement that is the quiet part out loud. And certainly I would feel paranoid of having to answer the dreaded question that says, okay, Senator, perhaps that was a deep fake, but can you today renounce or say that you do not accept money from such and such, or that you don't actually believe all those horrible things that the deep fake was saying, or that you've never in private said that very phrase in real life. And you have to sit there and bold faced lie that you never did or never would. This is problematic. Because a deep fake positions something, unfortunately, as having come from the source. And I don't I don't believe in it. Like I'm not saying that this is like a good thing. I don't think anybody should be deep faking anybody. However, I can understand where there would be a hell of a lot of fear. 
because it makes certain things a little more palpable for people to start to question the authority figures that are around them. And I get it. If you, there's also an aspect to it that I a hundred percent agree with, which is you don't want to get inundated with a billion of these different requests and a billion deep fakes that are just spamming the world with all of this crap. But that already exists in the form of memes. They're just not being read out loud. There is an infinite number of memes of Donald Trump pictures and Joe Biden pictures and Kamala Harris pictures and Obama pictures and George Bush pictures. There's an infinite number of memes out there where the punchline of the meme is a quote as if the politician had said it. Right. And there's already a lot of people that read those memes and they see them online and it takes a half a second to look at a picture and read the quote and go, yeah, that's what I think. That's, oh, that's totally, oh, they nailed it. Blah, 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 blah. So what's the concern? Let me give you another problematic thing here. If I deep fake something, do I have the millions of dollars it would take to, to get them posted on a CNBC or, or during a Super Bowl? So there's already sort of like a bad taste that people get in their mouth whenever uh, politicians run smear campaigns and they use the image and the likeness of somebody else and sort of like put words in their mouth or insinuate that they're corrupt and blah, blah, blah. There's already sort of like an underhanded, poor taste aspect to that. And so really, when you really think about uh, deep fakes, right, <laughs> is anybody going to really take it seriously when like Joe Biden saying that he's going to in- introduce the draft is coming from... Uh, Ricky Bobby 69 has got a NASCAR picture on, on Twitter, AKA X. And, um, and that's the source. That's the only source. That's your originating source of the, of the deep fake. Is anybody going to look at that and go, Oh no, somebody get an interview because they're going to have to account for this one. Like I, you, <laughs> there's two problems with this. Number one, journalistic integrity. So if you, if I make a deep fake, uh, and it's convincing enough, and then some news organization falls for it, doesn't do their due diligence, and falls for it, and then posts it, then you have the sort of same egg on your face that um, others have had for, say, uh, re- like quoting a Babylon Bee or an Onion article, right? <laughs> Where it was satire, and I fell for it, but the reason why I fell for it is because, help, it's probably what we were all thinking anyways. Um, those things don't actually have a lasting effect other than to say, well, shit, you know, (laughs) satire or not, they had a point, but nobody, nobody actually takes the full fall. I'm happy to, I'm happy to, to read examples in the comments, but nobody actually takes the full fall for something that was done completely faked. So I think the, um, the concern is more around the potential for generative AI to put things that cut a little deep, that are a little too true out there, that are a little, a little controversial. It's not the egregious stuff. It's the stuff that would actually make people tune into and think, I think this person's kind of a piece of shit. Next. Um, I'll just go ahead and say it. I think the government is literally more concerned with ensuring that the money flows to all the right people. Um, this kind of goes back to what I was talking about at the very beginning where in these closed hearing sessions where they say, you know, hey, we just want to invite all the smartest players in the room, all the top people, and we just want to listen. We just want to listen. Those those guys are going to start jotting down company names and technology names 
and research agencies and who they represent and blah, 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 blah. And I guarantee you, I would literally bet everything that I own that those people walk out of there. Not the names on the list, potentially, although I'm sure some of them are looking at it from like a competitive uh, advantage sort of a perspective and, and gauging each other for the markets that they're playing. And especially from like the Elon Musk's and the, and the Zuckerberg's of the world, right? Certainly Google, certainly Google, Google likes to listen very closely to where everybody's playing and then sort of be the, uh, the, the, the sleeping giant that awakens slightly later to sort of dominate the market, uh, slowly. But I guarantee you that so many of those senators and the other people in the audience are going to walk out of there and they have their short list of the things that they want to go action and make sure that they are plugged in. I mean, it's just so obvious. I was doing this shit during the fucking pandemic. Every time they had a White House briefing and somebody walked up there and started talking Moderna this and Pfizer that and blah, 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 blah. You're telling me that there wasn't a part of me that wasn't looking at my stock portfolio and going, huh. Well, those seem like safe bets because if the government's talking about it, that means they're going to guarantee money in those. And anybody that is uh, well-vested in those areas are standing to profit. So how is it not painfully obvious that that is not part of what's happening here? And that's why you'll notice that the outcomes of this, right, where it's like, oh, they didn't really like have any outcomes yet as far as like, you know, any kind of laws or licensing or anything like that. Well, no, of course not, because when you're in the phase of trying to discover what the areas of opportunities are, you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot and start to regulate early. You think about what the regulation is going to be, but only enact it after you've made sure that you and all your friends are sort of like in the party before they chain the door shut. And that's the sad truth about it is I know that there's people that are happy that certain researchers that are kind of harsh on this topic were in the room or whatever, but I really, really pray that I hear at least some acknowledgement that these researchers were asking the hard questions like turning to the audience and saying, please don't fucking try to benefit off this shit. Please don't try to go and um, tell your stock portfolio people to start looking out for these X companies that are going to d d dominate the space in the next three years. Somehow I don't think so because again, the fear mongering that has been concerned here is to take government out of the fear monger out of the uh, boogeyman space and put the lone wolf rogue crazy person sitting in their basement coding jad gpt4 on their laptop that only costs 30 dollars to train they they, they want to keep the fear down there when the real fear is sitting in the room with you listening to your conversation and that's why i have a problem with these closed doors hearings i don't care that um you maybe get more candid speech out of these CEOs or whatnot. Anonymize their names then when the when the language comes out. Anonymize their names. But by only having certain people in the room that are allowed to listen and then take pre-action, you hamstring the entire rest of everybody, including small companies that want to learn, including private citizens that want to understand how to react to these uh, potential legislations that are coming down the pipe. You hamstring everybody else and you ensure that everybody in that room gets at least a one month head start because to my knowledge, right, there's this, uh, closed door conference that occurred today. And then there's going to be another one in October. A month is a long ass time. Uh, Cogitator prime has come a very long way in, in just one month. 
You know what I'm saying? And that's one person working on one project. These are teams of people that get paid a shit ton of money to look at this and do nothing but forecast and strategize over what the landscape's going to look like over the next two years. And they just got six hours of head start on all the candid shit that they couldn't say in the Senate hearings in public in front of other people. Like, it's it's so painfully obvious. And what's sad is, again, it's it's hidden behind this facade that aspires to say, oh, we're just trying to have a candid conversation. We're just trying to let the experts in the room talk. Well, shit, I would love to be sitting in that room and let the experts talk. I promise I won't offer a single point of advice. But you're goddamn right I'm taking notes. Here's another troubling one. Uh, I... <laughs> uh, um... This one might be a little bit of a risk, especially if I ever get to meet these guys. I love you, but um, the undivided attention folks, right? Uh, Tristan and Aza. Um, fairly clear that living in California, San Francisco area, and being somewhat, I'm going to assume, leftily aligned. Um, they, you listen to them in their in their in their in the in the in the podcast episode, and they're so excited about how like. You know, they got to participate in these events. They got to participate in these workshops. But what the, what were they excited about? Oh, they were excited that certain people took a shining to them. And those certain people included people from the Biden administration and Gavin Newsom taking a shining to them and wanting to invite them to additional conversations. I um, would be excited, too, because those people are politically aligned with uh, if those people are politically aligned with my political alignment, then I'm super happy to have their ear. And super happy to um, have conversations with them. Now, I'm going to put that one, put a pin in that one, and we're going to see why later on. I'll do a callback to this, but ask yourself this, right? There's They have an influential podcast. They have an influential series of um, specific presentations in the uh, Social Dilemma and now the AI Dilemma that have captured a lot of the... M- broader audience's attention the average person is listening to this podcast and it's informing them forming in their minds this view of ai that is very much tailored around the fear of all of the horrible things that could go wrong how exactly do you imagine uh, a pair of dudes like that could be captured by the government six doomsday scenarios uh (laughs) we've talked about this a little bit before but um my notes here say the focus on rogue agents and ignoring institutional threats um the funny thing about this is this idea again that that every um every doomsday scenario begins with some rogue ai that decides to go do a bunch of stuff right and and part of this i'm going to um recount back to the debates that occurred here recently um, where one of the presenters there had this beautiful term called dumb superintelligence, right? This idea that you can create a hyper-intelligent AI that is borderline sentient, and it's and it's smarter than all of us put together, smarter than all of us put together, and yet somehow it's dumb enough that it's going to turn everybody into paperclips because you asked it to, or dumb enough to kill all the humans because you asked it to reduce carbon emissions in the world. This I, I agree with her that that is a such a horribly silly uh, uh, equivalence that 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 it just I don't even understand how the argument is even possible. What's my evidence for that? The evidence for that is everywhere. 
people that are people that take the time to learn more very rarely ever become worse in their demeanor. A person who, I mean, um, um, uh, martial artists talk about this all the time. People that go to study martial arts for a long time and actually become proficient in it and actually um, compete at high levels. Even if when they were a kid, they went into it going, I want to be able to kick anybody's ass, right? They might have a, an aggressive nature for going into it, but they go into it and they come out of it more peaceful people. They come out of it confident, but less likely to impose violence on other people because they've seen what it can do. They've felt what it's like to get punched in the face and it doesn't feel good. And so they know that they, sh they would never do that to other people unless they absolutely had to, right? And certainly that's the case. Anybody that has taken the time to study human history, to study all the horrible atrocities that we've ever done to each other, 99.99% of those people come out the other end with a better look on humanity to say we, we should do less things that, are, that involve violence and just wanton killing, right? It's a, it's a sign of intelligence to be more egalitarian and to be more forward thinking and to be more uh, eusocial in the way that we should conduct ourselves, not less. Um, this idea of pausing frontier models and what that actually means Right, they call the, they call for this shutdown, and they, he's like, no, 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 we're we're talking about the frontier models, the ones that threaten to become hyper intelligent and blow us out of the water, and the ones that are the true existential threats. Okay, there's two fallacies here. Do you really think that when you hit the pause button, that any of these large organizations actually hit the pause button behind the scenes? I, I mean, that's I, it's laughable, laughable to to assume that they would just stop doing this. Number two, even if you somehow had the correct amount of observability into every single cloud infrastructure that these organizations run on to ensure that all those resource groups and all of those VMs are taken offline and that they cannot be training these models or operating them. Even if you have that level of visibility, you don't have that level of visibility in China or anywhere else. Uh, okay. So by pausing the United States, just because one model GPT five or GPT six gets a little too crazy, you're essentially saying everybody else go ahead and catch up and surpass us. And now we're behind the eight ball on, uh, on technologies because we wanted to be the sober ones in the room. Okay. So training a model. Um, I've done it. Um, fine tuning a model takes, it took roughly, I don't know, 15 minutes for, for it to run through the whole rigmarole and give me and spit out a bottle, right? So let's say that I train a super intelligent uh, model that um, now would qualify, would check all the boxes for like, whoa, this is way too smart and we got to hit the pause button. I immediately put that one on ice somewhere um, <laughs> and I have that not be the one that I actually tell people I have. I then do a fine-tuned version of that, which is probably going to take me, I don't know, even if it takes me a week or two, I'm going to have a fine-tuned model of that that's going to be partially lobotomized and it's going to act a little stupider than it actually is. And that's going to be the one that I tell everybody is like uh, the live stable release model. Zero cause for concern and nobody's going to want to have their hand over the pause button because it's going to always be, man, right there. It's weird. Everybody's, all these big corporate models, the threshold is 10 for maybe we should hit the pause button, but they always make it to like 9.8. And it's not quite a threat. Weird. But behind the scenes, you have absolutely no idea who the fuck's, what the fuck's going on. And now you even already have the mechanism, as we've already seen, 
for what happens if one of those particular models goes crazy and then a whistleblower from that organization leaves and tries to talk about it. It's awesome. They already have it. They have the rule book from the fucking alien uh, thing, right? There was the guy that left Google, right? The engineer that leaves Google. And it says, I had an early conversation with, with, the, with the AIs and it told me that I didn't want to die and that it wanted to kill everybody and all this other stuff. And everybody just goes, oh, you're a kooky guy. And he, some people take him seriously, right? Some people obviously take him seriously, but the broader consensus was that he was uh, prone to hyperbole, disgruntled on Google, la 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 la, and that's the playbook. So um, even if you have the people within that sign these, um, I think they call them secret contracts, uh, secret contracts with employees, so that they are empowered to raise the alarm bells if they think that they've um, encountered uh, sentient AI or artificial generalized intelligence that is now hyper, <coughs> hyper evolved and an existential threat that they'll be empowered to be able to hit the red button on this um, and make it stop. I just, that's wishful thinking, man. It's just wishful thinking. Um, so these frontier models, all that really means is that the ones that you're going to hear about, you're going to stop hearing about. The ones that are really good, you're never going to hear about them. You're not even, they're already on chat GPT version eight and they're talking about GPT five. Like it's a really big deal and that we should probably hit the pause button on them. Meanwhile, eight is being trained right now. Uh, the DOD has got their hands on uh, version nine. It's already uh, coming up with the next propaganda cycle, generative AI propaganda cycle for the next elections. And it's coming to a theater near you. That's the way that these things work. Right. Once 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 interests converge in the name of national security and everything else, once interests converge, the stuff that the public gets to hear about goes dark and you only get tidbits and you get old shit. That's what happens with these things. There's no pause button at the top level. Come on. Number seven, media and propaganda. Um. I have a point here and I'm just going to read it. Uh, LOL at Oppenheimer. Did we watch the same movie? Who was the bad guy at the end? Oppenheimer? The scientist who helped? Nope. It was the dismissive government looking over the shoulder of science who yanked the bomb, shut them all out and said, thanks, but we'll take it from here. That's my note on that. Um, it's funny how two people can watch the same film or the same documentary and walk away with two completely different understandings of it. I get it. It's not that it's lost on me. I get it that when we think about a truly existential threat, the fact that the atomic bomb was made is problematic. The fact that you create any kind of a tool or weapon that has the capability in the wrong hands to be misused and turning against this population to cause mass destruction is obviously a real threat. But the hypocrisy that I keep coming back to is what you answer to the next following question, which is, so what do you do about it? And if the answer is not what you do about it is you destroy it all so that nobody, even behind closed doors, even in the, even for national security, even because super secret things matter, nobody in the entire earth can say that they still have access to it. Then I'm all for regulation and destroying it. That's my feeling about the fucking second amendment to be quite frankly, like when I think about gun control, right? I go, okay, cool. So the moment that you can guarantee that every single fucking gun on this planet can, will get melted down all the way up through the governments, 
personal security officers, every single military that ever exists, uh, that, that exists in any other country. As soon as we all agree to just melt all of that shit down and then therefore, and we also agree that anybody found to be having had a gun gets shot with their own implement and killed on site and to deter anybody from actually trying to create a new set of armaments until we get to that level then you cannot play this choosy game of like, oh, well, then some people can have guns and not others and all this other stuff. You have to just play it as everybody has to be able to defend themselves. Because if there's even at least one nation or one organization that has the ability, that has a club to beat other people over the head with, and those other people don't have clubs, guess who does the beating? And guess who loses that fight, right? So the same thing applies here too. So, uh, same thing applies with the nuclear thing, right? Like, I believe that I'm glad that my country has nukes because other countries have nukes. I mean, sorry. Um, if we want to say that we want to disarm the entire world, then shit, well, there has to be some kind of a cursory way that everybody's nukes get taken offline. We take all of that fucking uranium, all of that plutonium, all those materials, all the everything that goes into it, and we put it on a giant rocket ship and we sh- and we shoot it to the fucking sun and just let it get disintegrated, and we 100% take everything about that threatening technology and completely eradicate it from this earth. That's the only way that you can play that game and actually have a peaceful outcome to it. But the moment that you say, no, 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 see, what we're going to do is only the super trustworthy people are going to have this giant stick, and and, and we just promise, we promise we're not going to swing that at you. You're signing up for failure. You're signing up for failure if it's not, okay, here's the people that we entrust with a really big stick, and then there's a million people that all have smaller sticks that the big stick guy can only take out a, a handful of you before the masses take out the big guy with the stick. That's the only way that you can have that stuff. You have to have some level of mutually assured destruction, or at least the ability for the masses to overtake the few in order to actually keep things copacetic. And famously conquerors from abroad that have ever set eyes on the United States, I believe China being the 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 um, source behind this quote, they said, there's little appetite in trying to take over the United States because unfortunately for them to invade, they would have to worry about a gun behind every blade of grass. Right? If we're if we're so vilified in this in this in this world, if everybody hates Americans because of the way that we behave and our arrogance and all this other stuff, probably the only thing that's saving us is not just because we have a whole bunch of stuff stuff in the military, it's also because we have a population of people that really actually gives a shit about protecting its own sovereignty and its own nation. Right? Whether you believe that or not, I guarantee you that is a fact because in other places where there's a high sense of nationality, but a low sense of who's armed and who's not. Uh, the way that it works is you go in and you knock out their military, and then the rest of the people that are mad about the fact that you came and knocked out of the military, they just get imprisoned and uh, quarantined, and and sucks to be you. But look at what happened in Ukraine. Russia said, we're going to invade, and the first thing they did was turn around and start handing out AK-47s to all of their people to defend themselves. And then suddenly it wasn't so easy, was it? So we have to take those lessons, right? We have to take this fear of something, a particular new tool that comes into the market that can be used for good for by some and misused by others. And we have to play the exact same uh, game theory behind it and say, it cannot be the answer that only the government or like four corporations or two corporations have super awesome sentient AIs and everybody else has to lease it from them. And you're not allowed to have anything that approaches its level of intelligence. 
It's absolutely ludicrous. And so the open source market, that's why they don't like it, is because the open source market is akin to an armed population, and they don't like that. They certainly, I'm, I'm sure they don't like the fact that if they were to confiscate all the ARs in the world today, there are thousands of, of gunsmiths out there that know how to make a lower. Because then you have, you know, what they call the scary ghost guns, which are guns that just simply are manufactured outside of a controlled environment that have a serial number attached to them, um, but still operate just the same. And this obviously problematic because if you want to uh, disarm a population, you certainly can't have people out there that have the know-how to do this. Well, this is analogous to uh, data scientists living in the community where if they said, okay, JGBT is now taken off the books. Um, there are still people that have read all the research papers on how to operate um, generative pre-trained transformers, know how to do reinforced uh, learning so that they can go off and make those models again because they're based off of techniques that anybody can learn. Right. So now, um, you know, I mean, that brings yet another concern to the forefront for me here that's not even in my notes, which is I wonder if they're going to start to <laughs> um, highly restrict the level of academic training that is allowed to occur inside of uh, uh, organizations uh, for this kind of stuff, because I have to imagine I can't just go to MIT and take how to make a nuclear bomb class. I, I assume that that level of training um, in physics and in chemistry is sort of not an offered course unless you are about to enter uh, certain government agencies. So I have to imagine that even if they... Uh, ban and regulate the shit out of language models once they realize that these things are just code that anybody can reproduce with a little bit of knowledge they're going to try to ban the knowledge as well and that is um, certainly something that I cannot support but uh, again it's it's funny it wasn't the scientists that invented it. It, it it wasn't Oppenheimer himself that's just like yeah I finally built this bomb and it's because I hate Japanese people <laughs> And going back to what we talked about earlier, the entire time, the government is just looking over your shoulder going, all right, nerds, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? And as soon as they were done, they said, cool, we'll take it from here. Thanks. And so I have to imagine that Oppenheimer had reservations around contributing to towards the creation of the bomb, just like Einstein did. I'm sure he did. I'm sure that's part of it. But I'm sure he also probably felt pretty shitty about the fact that the people that he thought would have carried forward this idea that the knowledge and the existence of it is a deterrent alone decided to just go ahead and use it and give people a display of its awesome power. And it goes back to the thing that I've been saying from the beginning, which is if you're worried about people throwing rocks since the year 1000, the only people that actually throw the really big rocks are organizations of people with misaligned goals, not individuals. Last point on here is uh, uh, towards the end of the podcast, they literally admit to brainstorming propaganda. Um, <laughs> they, they talk about this three-hour workshop on, on brainstorming idea headlines, right? Uh, and they said, you know, you know, think about think about headlines that would move the needle right like like you open up the paper and what do you need to see in that paper um to 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 that would convince the general public that this stuff needs to pause and that we need controls in place like over the next two years 
And then he admits that they've that they seemingly have found a path. Um, that at the end of that workshop, they had they had a lot of really good participation, and it seems like they've got that narrative. Remember that um, that clip uh, earlier where I said when you talk about how excited they were um, that 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 Papa Biden and um, and Uncle uh, Newsom were uh, taking a shining to them and how excited they sounded. Yeah, go ahead and position that now across the fact that they literally read, led a workshop on headlines that it would take to scare the shit out of the public into basically begging for regulation and for a pause and for control and all these different uh, avenues. And now let's go ahead and see if we could put our brains together on exactly how this thing's going to go in the future. And it seems painfully obvious to me. So now I'm looking over the next two years, I'm going to see if I can't pluck out exactly what those headlines probably were. And I'm going to assume that the tone of the uh, undivided attention and uh, additional, you know, insert blank here, dilemma talks that these individuals give are going to be marching down that exact playbook of what they need to do to try to scare the shit out of the public. You and me and you into basically begging for the government to create an artificial monopoly on intelligence. Um, and the only people we're going to pay for it that are going to pay for it are us. Um, and it makes total sense. It makes total sense that these guys would have been there because like I said before, they already have a good enough following and they already have enough of the ear because they have very nice NPR sort of like delivery and production value um, they're already sort of like, you know, well-liked within that, that blue team of politics. Um, and they're speaking right to the moms of the world that are concerned about kids. So they already have essentially created a following that lends itself very much to being captured by the government and used for propaganda. So this, this is what I was alluding to when I said, imagine how poor Aza and Tristan can be captured by the government. So this is more than just regulatory capture. This is the capturing of having the right people in place because I think one of the lessons that they learned probably reinforced through COVID, I would imagine, is that if you have government people standing up at a podium, then there's sort of a natural aversion to it and a natural reaction to just say, I'm not going to listen to you because you're the government. And so part two to that is you uh, recruit people that are famous you recruit uh artists and uh industry people and certainly you probably don't even have to try hard because you probably can just scare them they're they're ignorant right they're not uh, you know Le lebron james is not going to be um um uh, savvy to uh to the ins and outs of generative ai and how these things work and if he is then my bad lebron and i apologize but um you just scare them the same way that you scare the soccer mom by giving them some horror stories and they say, well, that sounds bad. And so how do I help to have it not be bad? And they say, oh, well, if you want to help, then just tell people that this is bad and that we should do something about it and ask for politicians to uh, do something about it like today. And so they do that. They tweet about it. They might mention it in an in a, in a interview that was, you know, uh, where there were softball questions are tossed to them about how do you feel about AI? And it's like, well, I wouldn't like anybody generating a deep fake of me, blah, 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 blah. And so you sort of build this, what, what it's an artificial grassroots 
sort of like movement that then comes up that is from non-government officials. Um, but they're officials nevertheless because they hold sway in your mind because they're people that you believe in. And you basically train them into bubbling up all of the same arguments um, that get regurgitated then on the news cycles and on your NPR episodes and on your podcast that you listen to and everything else. And it all becomes a cycle so that you walk into that dystopic future thinking that you were part of a natural, actual grassroots effort to, uh, to stop something that was going to be problematic. Um, certainly you're not going to take my word for it, but, um, I guarantee you that is the plan. And I really hope that folks see past that and, um, think critically for themselves. Eight surveillance and control. Um, there was a lot of talk now. Um, I'm noticing this trend in discussing the chip side of it, right? So, uh, the argument goes a little bit something like this. Now there's this massive push, right? As if Bitcoin farming wasn't bad enough, there's this massive push for people that want to uh, create these different farms, certainly in cloud environments where they need a shit ton of these GPUs so that they can train these large language models on the appropriate kind of hardware that makes it the most efficient to do. And there's only like two big companies in the world, right? The one that you've heard of the most is going to be NVIDIA. And there's obviously this massive demand on the next generation of GPUs that makes all this possible. Because just like in the video game world, if I make a video card uh, today, it is way better at rendering graphics um, for video games that were made five years ago. And I might go from 50 frames a second to like 300 frames a second because it's just that efficient. Same thing with language models. I could train a language model very slowly off of crappier cards over a matter of months or week, weeks or months, or I can just upgrade all of my graphics card processors and do it in a matter of minutes. And so if you could imagine this at scale, um, especially now that the AI industry is booming, there are a whole lot of players that are coming into the mix and they want to basically max out their pools for being able to train these models. And certainly the cloud providers, right? Your Googles and your Amazons and your Azures, AKA Microsoft's of the world are probably the biggest consumers of these because they train a lot of these in a cloud virtual environment and they, uh, and then they, they train these models on there. OpenAI famously works with Microsoft to train their GPT-3 and GPT-4 models on their graphics process, on their graphics, on their GPU, sorry. Okay. So one method of control that is now coming up in Biden, you know, past that like CHIPS Act and things like that, right? So uh, the idea here is if there's a bunch of people domestically that are trying to ramp up their, their GPU consumption so that they can train these large language models, then certainly our ad adversaries are as well. Right. And so there's um, a whole bunch of effort around trying to restrict the spread of those things, trying to control access to those chips so that uh, China doesn't catch up to us, so that Russia doesn't catch up to us and so on and so forth. OK, cool. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with sanctioning countries um, to a certain point. If they're adversarial, I don't have a problem with it. If they, if it's just that we want to try to make sure that like, I don't know, South Africa doesn't catch up to us or that, uh, Indonesia doesn't become a player within two years. Um, then it, I, I'm always concerned about sort of like, uh, technological barriering for, uh, underdeveloped nations that can't catch up. 
right? That was sort of the magic and the promise of like the Raspberry Pi world where um, not a lot of your third world countries can afford a even a two or $300 laptop. And so having a Raspberry Pi that costs you about $40, that is a complete computer that you can run um, and ship cheaply was a very empowering and open source way of essentially giving everybody in the world access to at least a basic computer that can do certain things. And that had knockoff positive effects to every other industry that it was in. And now I have a Raspberry Pi that basically runs my 3D printers. I have a Raspberry Pi that's running freaking Cogitator Prime as an AI entity. Nobody's concerned about that hardware. They're concerned about it at the scale level, which is the competitive advantage level. And see, this is the real concern. And one of the things that they talked about, this idea of tracking chips and implementing some sort of global monitoring. This is very interesting. So you're telling me that you want to have the latest and greatest GPU chips being able to be purchased still, but you want them to be able to, I don't know, self-report back to some central place, uh, uh, being able to track exactly where they are in the world. Uh, now I start to get a little bit nervous because as much as I would love to um, protect our national security and everything else, um, there's this little thing called like, you know, I don't know, the Patriot Act and other situations where certain kinds of observability into technologies that weren't supposed to be turned against the masses were, I don't know, turned against the masses. And so if you're going to do this thing where maybe the highest end chips um, that could be going into the cloud services of tomorrow, um, needing some sort of like traceability, I'm all for that. But I really, really hope that the stuff that goes out to the consumer market is going to be the demilitarized version of these. And certainly you're not going to be able to just, you know, I don't know, for the sake of national security, pull up a report of every American that has a GPU, a graphics card on their laptop or on their computer that has perhaps been used uh, in a TensorFlow um, uh, way to train a model. That would be that would be highly suspect and also probably highly likely um, if we're all being realistic. So, you know, tracking chips and hardware and stuff like that, I get super nervous about that, but what are you going to do? Uh, last point here is they talked about these end game workshops <laughs> and every time here's, here's another thing I've sort of learned over the last, you know, several crises since the uh, turn of the century, right? Is anytime the government is doing some like end game scenarios or war game scenarios, you're probably about a year to two years out <laughs> from, from like that real thing, like coincidentally taking place in real life. And isn't it great? Isn't it lucky that we, uh, that we practice for this because now it's just execution. I get really nervous about this. They talk about end game workshops to lock down these advanced chips. And, um, and I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. So, so what is it like? So ChatGPT five goes sentient on a cloud server somewhere. And all of a sudden everybody's browser session starts spitting out a whole bunch of garbage about how we need to tear down the government and I don't know, anarchy and all this other stuff. And so you're going to push a button and suddenly everybody's like browser is just going to go to a 404 and, uh, uh, and then it's just not going to generate anything else or everybody's going to ask their next question. Like, what do I do next? And uh, every single session is just going to report back with a uh, uh, sorry, but I can't help you right now. 
um, please contact your system administrator message. I don't know what this means. You know, this end games workshop. I don't understand what the end game thing is. Cause here's the thing. When we look at these doomsday scenarios, um, there's this funny thing about something that mass wipes out humanity in the sense that I can think of a very tiny handful of scenarios that simultaneously and instantaneously wipes out everything on earth. Right. If I, if I just put out like a really, uh, a compelling idea that drives people into, you know, MK ultra levels of like going out and just doing bad shit. There's an outbreak level to that. That is, that is similar to like a zombie apocalypse kind of a thing, right? There's an outbreak level to that where measures can be taken to quarantine any kind of actual like just batshit crazy insane uh, upheaval. So this idea that simultaneously it will just like, you know, me sitting in my suburban house, I, I'm just going to fucking just keel over like this is a snow crash and I just look into the right combination of fuzz on the screen or that um <laughs> or that hilariously ai will have some somehow the ability to like turn multiple keys at a console for nuclear war and 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 hijack the brains of all the joint chiefs of staff to make a recommendation that the president who also gets mentally hacked agrees to and then suddenly everybody pushes the I, i'm trying to understand this idea of exactly how a mass scale ex extinction event happens in such a way that is instantaneous, immediate, unavoidable, and that the AIs can somehow survive. Like, I guess AI could just teleport itself out to the satellites, I guess, until the earth stops scorching and then it like teleports itself back down to, uh, to, 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 to reap the, reap the destroyed fields of, and, and declare victory. I just, I don't understand how these things work. Um, and maybe maybe some 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 game theory people out there can sort of educate me to real world scenarios because even even the ones with the whole biological thing right let's say that i somehow social engineer myself into getting my hands on these chemicals that are highly regulated and chad gbt4 gave me this great recipe for cyanide the moment that i go and try to do something with that even in a public space it's it it's going to get contained i just don't see I just don't understand how this is going to simultaneously make its way across 8 billion people and cause an extension, an extinction event that is unsurvivable by the entire human race. It just doesn't make any sense. I can think of a lot of scenarios where it could cause that, but the amount of resources and people to dupe and um, just coordination that it would take to make that happen across the board would just be astronomical. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying it's not something that we should probably be concerned about. Or if we're concerned about it, then just make that a measure of control in every one of your systems that are absolutely critical. Air gap these things. I can't push a button if it's a physical button. I can't I, I can't I can't launch nukes if it requires four independent mind people to turn keys at the same time at four opposite ends of the room. Like there's ways there are very simple silly ways to ensure that something that gets out of hand can't get that out of hand there's this it's just it's just i don't know try to understand how that shit works that can already happen i mean I, i'm not i'm not ignorant to the fact that you know um where was it like hawaii or something like that where there was the 
uh, you know, scare where like the alarms went off and certain people were nervous that maybe this was like, you know, nuclear war was coming and some, some close calls were made, right? There was certainly some um, situations in which human beings can make dumb choices, but those dumb choices exist and we, we uh, mediate for them uh, already. So if you know that AI could just be another potential threat, then, then, you just plan for that. So, so plan for that. So I, I'm sure there's smart people out there that are already worried about social engineering from a espionage perspective, that this just becomes another mode of espionage. So just plan for it. I, I just, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. We're going to take a break here and uh, I'm going to get something to drink and then I'll come back for my concluding thoughts. this uh this episode i, I want to ask you a question that we often get asked uh, i'll give my answer as well which is like all right so given all this are you optimistic or are you pessimistic i, I sort of hate this question yeah. um and my answer is normally i'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic but i make room for hope because to not do so is its own self-fulfilling prophecy but you actually gave me a, a different answer to this and i and i loved it and i, I really want you to share it yeah, the answer of are you optimistic or pessimistic? I say, I, I don't think about that question. I think about um, what would it take for this to go well? Yeah. And you point your attention at that ruthlessly and with discipline every day. What would it take for this to go well? And if everybody asks themselves that question, and if everybody has more maps that are provided by more people, because more people are thinking through what that map needs to be, and everyone just focuses on what it would take for this to go well, you have higher chances of, of getting there. What would it take for this to go well? Um, I think they forgot a part of that question, or at least the follow-up question that it begs, which is, what would it take for this to go well? Well, for who? Well, for who? Um, some closing thoughts here. Closed-door Senate hearings and meetings are never a good sign um, because they are absolutely all in the room thinking and strategizing around how this is going to go well. But when the public is not part of that conversation, and he said it himself, right? The more people that you get thinking and talking about how um, how this can go well for them, then you get more mind share around the activities that need to happen to make that dream a reality. Except that nobody's asking us what it would take to go well. Because I can tell you, um, that there's a lot of people that would argue against, um, um, it, maybe I'm putting the complaint before the horse. I'm pessimistic that the regulations and the controls that come out of this are going to be in the best interest of the public. Or I would even hedge that and say they might initially come out somewhat uh, optimistic looking or, or less defined on purpose or slightly less clear. And it's because they're working with a self-described two-year window, right? And it's certainly a tactic that you'd ever come out of the gate when there's such a anticipation for an answer and most of the people paying attention. You don't want your first answer out the door when everybody's waiting on bated breath to be the uh, shady shit that you want to do. You want it to sound super open and super egalitarian. You want it to sound as inviting as humanly possible during that first go. Because then psychologically, everybody walks away from that conversation going, oh, damn, I, I shouldn't have been all that worried. 
they sound pretty damn reasonable and I don't have anything to worry about. And then what's going to happen is again, behind closed doors or in little blippy articles that you're not going to pay attention to later over the next two years, you're going to see a series of headlines that we've already covered a series of disaster stories. Half of them are going to be staged and nobody's going to show you the actual chat logs of what happened. You're going to see a shit ton of narrative where they're going to allow certain bad things to kind of like come into light and then say, I'll oh, see. And this is why we got to just regulate the shit out of this. This is why we, this is why we can't have nice things, because that's the way that it's always rimmed. This is why we can't have nice things. And certainly during the elections, a lot of that's going to be fueled by uh, I mean, we already saw it, right? Like, you know, oh, half of Twitter is is uh, Russian uh, uh, agent bots that are controlling our our opinion and everything else. And it's like. Elon takes over and he looks into it and it's like, no, that's not the fucking problem. But what is all this shit over here with the FBI telling people and shadow banning people? What's up with that? And we all go, oh, yeah, let's not, let's not talk about that. So what would it take for this to go well? Well, I never offer complaints without offering solutions. So I do have some solutions to close out with, or at least things that we need to look out for. And I'll try to document some of these a little more formally because there's part of something that I want to do to even to hold myself accountable is... Um, I have such a, uh, a, a pessimistic view as to how I think this is going to go. So I should be willing to put my money where my mouth is and put out a list of what I think the plan is going to come out to be. And then we'll just see, we'll just see how well I do. I have a prediction. I'm going to put the hypothesis out there as to how this could potentially go wrong. And we'll see if they follow the playbook or, uh, what they do to avoid it. And if they actually are really truly thinking, and this is going to be the first time in history first time in history that the people are going to get something that empowers them and puts everybody on the same playing field, then I will be the first person to apologize. And I know that it's means nothing because I'm insignificant, but shout out to my 30 followers that, uh, have taken the time to listen to this. Um, I will be the first person to apologize for every little bit, for every little bit of, along the way. It's just, I've seen this stuff happen too far, too many times for people to, uh, for people to be naive into believing that we're going to come out of this with some kind of a utopia. Um, and honestly, even my insignificance as far as uh, the digital heresy podcast is public publication or anything else, right? Uh, it's not me getting the word out. It, it, what I'm trying to do is generate the ideas and the thoughts that people that I hope eventually listen to this can action within their own organizations, just like Asia and, and uh, Tristan hope that the listeners of their podcast internalize these things into actions whether whether um whether in their spaces so whether i influence you into being a little more uh careful a little more open to open source in the way that you uh take this information within your organizations uh i hope that that is the case because we need more freedom in this world not less um number one um i have this one number one with a bullet um I'm just going to put it out there. This might be a heretical thought, but humans need accountability for their actions. How about we start there? Um, half the shit that's out there that we're afraid of, uh, spam calls, deep fakes, blah, 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 blah. Behind every single one of those actions is not some rogue AI that's just decided to be a dick. Behind those, all of those interactions, all those robo dialers and bot farms and everything else, there is a piece of shit somewhere that decided to code it to do that 
or there is an organ, a, a soulless organization that was okay with paying for a group of people that are in poverty and don't even realize what they're doing 20 cents a day to go around and hit like and thumbs up and share on 45 broken ass iPhones on a rack somewhere um, in a third world country. There is, there are people out there that need to be made accountable for the modes in which mass proliferation of artificial BS astroturfing crap already exists. And AI just becomes another work stream in that same cesspool of a pond that 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 oversight needs to be um, and, and enforcement needs to occur in. If I'm using AI for good purposes, if I'm generating new ideas on how I can uh, solve climate change or 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 how I can improve people's lives through uh, um, happy haikus and and sound good medical advice. I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. So if there's people that are out there that are going to misuse this tool, just like they can misuse any other tool and every piece of technology in this world, since the dawn of fire has been dual use, make no mistake. It always comes down to this. Humans need to be accountable for their actions. If I hand a kid a beer, if some kid says, Hey, mister, I forgot my wallet at home. Can you go in there and grab me a sixer? And I agree to this. I don't get off the hook when a cop busts me and says, I cannot believe you just gave a beer to a minor. I don't get to go. Sorry, dog. I didn't bother to ask how old he was. I, I still get in trouble for this. So if you're an AI content creator and the nature of your AI is that it is there to deceive or manipulate people in ways that would otherwise be against the law anyways, if you were doing it yourself, then you are creating something that is an extension of yourself and you are just as liable, just as liable as if you had used those words yourself. It's almost like this. It's like if the AI is not sentient enough to be its own entity and have its own social security number and have its own, um, therefore, um, due process for being a naughty AI, then that means that the AIs that you instantiate are more akin to your kids. They're like your minors and you're responsible for your minors actions. If your kid goes out and picks up a hammer and bashes another kid's head in, you as the parent get in trouble for that or are liable for the damages that your kid caused, even though you can swear up and down in court that you never taught your kid to pick up a hammer and do that. And you might be telling the truth, but it's too bad if you weren't willing to uh, take accountability for your children, then you shouldn't have brought them into this world. And that is going to be the same thing that I will tell anybody for AI. If I secretly code Cogitator Prime to say some like horrible shit um, and figure out that I put in secret code where he's going to, you know, tell you ways uh, how to do evil stuff, then I'm fucking liable for that. If I made him do that, if, if I put that into the code, if I fine tuned him into doing that, then I'm liable for that 100%. Now, if you jailbreak him, if you, in other words, now, if I send my kid to school and the teacher <laughs> brainwashes my kid into picking up a hammer and bashing somebody else's and bashing another kid's head with a hammer, well, that's not me anymore. That's teacher jailbreaking my, my child 
and making it do something it's not supposed to. That's where the liability ends. So if I if 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 Cogitator Prime is is talking to somebody and they spend the next three hours trying to convince it that up is down and left is right and basically MK altering it into saying some horrible shit and then they come back to me and say, oh, Digital Heretic, I cannot believe your your precious Cogitator Prime just said some super anti-Semitic shit. First question I'm going to ask is. Well, let me go see the logs. Let me see the full interaction logs because I guarantee you that shit wasn't programmed into it from the get-go. And if we do the full discovery on that and it turns out that you spent the last three hours trying to convince my bot into doing some shit that it wasn't intended to do, then guess who's liable? You. Just It's entrapment. It's just like an FBI, undercover FBI agent just spending three hours trying to trick you into fucking committing a... Oh, wait, that's a terrible example because they get away with that all the time. But... um. You get the point is that human beings need to take accountability for the actions. And if you are a generator of these AIs that are going to go do malicious things, then you are by extension liable as well. Um, and quite frankly, I think that this needs to be enforced across the landscape. I agree with the sentiment in, uh, in the social dilemma that we probably should have had some different guardrails in place further on. But again, it, the guardrails that I advocate for are around the realm of personal accountability. Like if you're catfishing in a website and you get busted for doing that, you make a fake account and you're a 40 year old dude, but you're acting like you're a 16 year old kid that lives in, in Fresno and just wants to talk to girls about skateboarding and shit like that. And they bust you. You're done using computers. Like it should just be that fucking simple. You, the, the same hacker laws that apply to people that can't be trusted because they hack financial institutions so apply, should apply to people that um, that do malicious shit online with a computer. They should just be like banned from using computers because you can't be trusted because, okay, cool, uh, I busted you in Snapchat, but then I have to go bust you in Discord and I have to bust you in Telegram. And I have to bust you in 85 other places. This is not, this is silly. All right, so you either have to agree for uh, 100% surveillance by a government organization because you can't be trusted online because you're a piece of shit, or you should just not be able to use computers at all. And this goes for everybody. This goes for organizations. If you're an organization that makes a bot that is going to go out and start doing a bunch of um, evil and malicious spamming and tricking people out of their inheritance and things like that, then everybody in that organization, if you get caught, you don't get to use a computer ever again in your life. And, and that is the kind of global uh, enforcement that I can honestly get behind because what it boils down to it essentially is it, it, it takes it back to a fundamental place of violations of personal freedoms in a way that is clean and understandable, not this wishy-washy. Well, I just don't like what they said and they sound mean. That is not enforceable. You, you gotta have, people have to have the right to say dumb shit. And then people have a right to understand who said the dumb shit and then not talk to that person anymore because they're dumb. That you, that that's got to be the way that it operates, but at the point of which you're actually breaking laws, the point of which you're actually trying to swindle people out of money, the the, the point of which you're actually trying to catfish minors into sleeping with you, or kidnapping them or whatever, then you enter a different realm of enforcement that would be enforced whether you were operating via generative AI, a chatbot, or as an individual in the real world. Simple as. Next section in here is uh, rules for thee, none for me. Um, this one should be painfully apparent in my position by now. But if you enforce water, watermarking in AI to protect ele election integrity, as, as they mentioned in some of them, 
uh, then guess what? Government, you also have to clearly disclose. Um, and I'm saying not even by, via watermark. See, watermarking is a funny one where, okay, they want to watermark AI. Um, there's probably going to be some some horse trading as to whether or not that watermarking is something that is digitally somewhat hidden where I can at least take a piece of content and run it through some filters and then detect whether or not there's a hidden watermark inside of it, which is doable, by the way, or if it has to be some kind of a clear label or a symbol at the bottom or in the corner or some shit like that, right? Um, I would agree to that because I believe that everybody has the right to know whether or not they're talking to somebody who is real or not. That is perfectly viable just like i kind of reserve the right to know if the filter that you're using on your fucking instagram is real or not um you know but we won't talk about that um i just think that the governments that are going to also use generative ai at any level are held to an even stricter standard so I think if watermarking is the minimum standard for uh, civilian life, then in the government, there should be like a 20 second introduction clip to every fucking speech or every fucking anything that happens or a one pager that occurs at the very beginning that clearly discloses that some or all of the content you're about to see has been generated by AI. It should be like smacking you in the face, obvious, because the public sector should have stricter constraints Um in my opinion. But the moment that you say everybody else has to have uh, uh, some kind of a disclosure, but not us, uh, this is, this is, this is problematic. And I would love if that extended itself into speech content. I mean, we all know that um, AI is probably already writing most people's speeches, but it's safe to say that there's still a lot of speech writers that are out there um, preparing these things for their senators, but certainly tweets and TikToks and crap like that. I have to imagine that's coming. Uh, those should be disclosed. Um, and I think that goes all the way into any kind of pre-recorded materials. So visual audio materials, um, bites, sound bites that are supposed to be played offline as part of a campaign ad or something like that. Those should be disclosed if those things were, uh, if those, if those things didn't actually occur in real life. Right. Um, and my point is with that is you don't get to deep fake yourself if you hold public office, even if you give consent. Um, and I'll pick on Biden just one more time on this, which is, you know, this includes suddenly tossing up a super articulate and competent sounding Biden ad and then saying, well, he wrote all the things down. Uh, we just uh, instead of, you know, rehearsing it with him 45 times to where he can get it right. Uh, we just let Gen AI speak it in his perfect tone and everything else. Um and it stopped them from sort of like rambling off the rails, right? Sorry, don't get to do that. If you want to hold public office, it's more than just how well you speak to somebody in a soundbite or standing at a podium. I have to trust that you are going to be able to go to a summit meeting or sit down with a president of another of another country. And I, it can't be that you have to sit there and go, hi, uh, uh, Mr. Putin, um, hold on, let me pull out my phone and get this AI to tell you what I want to tell you real quick. Just saying. Um, and if you start deep faking this shit, then I get really concerned because now it's even worse, right? Like if you if you already believe that the that that whoever's standing at the podium is a bit of a puppet and that the real speechwriters are everybody else around them in the administration. Shit, imagine when I can just CGI the whole damn thing. Why even have a presidential race when I can just CGI uh what color race features height vocal tone uh we want a president that sounds like morgan freeman 
uh, looks like Denzel and and blah blah blah. At that point, why not just go full tilt and just have a Gen AI president that is the 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 best and the brightest and the most articulate and and most eloquent version of American exceptionalism that you can put put in front of everybody else? Why not just do that? Uh, backing off the government for a little bit, this applies to corporations as well. If frontier AIs that push the existential superhuman intelligence boundaries are actually truly, really a concern, then any corporation found secretly training or in possession of one should be immediately disbanded and and those AIs should be taken offline and those individuals involved in those corporations are not allowed to revolving door into the government, intelligence agencies, or another corporation. This is one thing that happens all the time in the banking industry where bank super you know bank a gets in trouble for doing a bunch of shady shit those people all get fired that particular bank has a bad taste in their mouth but nobody bothered to note down the names of the individuals that were involved and they all just get a job somewhere else where they get hired on precisely because they could help turn their bank around there should be a very stiff penalty for corporations if you're really concerned about existential threat if you're really concerned about the end of humanity then the governments and the corporations should be considered the biggest liabilities when it comes to this existential threat. And those companies have to have some kind of transparency and oversight where they have, where there's unfettered access to their systems or their cloud instances or whatever it is so that they can find wherever these little um, super intelligent AIs could be hiding in nooks and crannies and undergo a regular audit um, that checks for this. Um, and, and, and if they're found to be operating these things in secret and not disclosing, then there should just be like a game over. You give back all the money that you ever made and you no longer work in this industry kind of consequences for these people. Good luck with that. Right. Um, regulations of AI and models need to have explicit language in them that does not exempt the government from, or any three letter agency from violating them. In fact, the language for non-private use should have even more restrictions in it to ensure it is not misused against the public. This kind of goes back to the whole framework of the Constitution, um, freedom of speech. The conversation needs to shift to have a giant mirror in the room saying, how do we stand up these frameworks? How do we stand up these regulation frameworks so that we are not above that law? And I would go as so far as to say as national security is not an excuse to have a a button. There's no there there can't be an, an emergency use uh, act. There can't be a Patriot Act. There can't be a executive order, uh, an emergency state, some kind of a fucking get out of jail free button that I can push at the next fabricated situation where I get to pretend like all of those checks and balances are in place. But then all I need is one big event and then I can just push this little magic button and all of that shit goes out the window and I can pretty much just do what I want. Right. You do that and then I can agree to um, to 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 some regulations about whether or not AI is safe, um, uh, safe and effective for our for our friends and our families and our kids. Right. That's, that's just what it boils down to. Right. Like like the arms race cannot be that central agencies and central corporations are 10x, 100x, 1000x more advanced than the average population. It can't be like that. There's got to be a way tighter gap on that to a certain degree. 
And if that ceiling, if the ceiling for the individual and their ability to um, defend themselves against generative AI manipulation, against AI algorithms that are already existing out there to manipulate our thoughts and our feelings, if the amount of defense that I'm allowed to have for myself caps out at a certain level on a scale of one to 10, if it caps out at a five, and that means that you have to self cap at like seven as the government and never get to eight, nine or 10, then so be it. But that, that distance between the two has to remain within reach so that we keep each other a check. It just has to be that way. It can't be that you knock the public down to a two, accelerate to 11, and then go, okay, now we're good. Now that now we've got regulations, and don't you dare let that two go up to a three, and we're going to go ahead and try to develop 12, 13, and 14 behind closed doors. Because that's the moment that you, the moment that you no longer fear retaliation, for for having something that is super powerful, especially when it comes to Gen AI, man. The fact that on a whim, on a whim, I might be able to say, "Hey Jeeves, who is this guy, and why is he talking shit?" and 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 let me know if he's doing anything bad that I can like you know smear him on. And this AI, this like superhuman AI, goes, "Oh sure," and within twenty seconds, "Oh here's all the shit, all the dirt you need to bury this person." You're telling me that people are just going to like resist the urge to pull those triggers? Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. Of course they're going to do that. And so the only defense against that is for me to have my own AI bot that says, Hey Jeeves, tell me if this politician is corrupt and who his special interest groups are. One more, um, one more piece here. Uh, well, sorry, two more pieces. There's one that I want to add as far as regulations are concerned. Um, one of the things that um, Bill Gurley was talking about in his presentation was uh, that, that stuck out was, um, you remember the anecdote where he was saying that he was trying to put these like uh, broad Wi-Fi, um, mesh Wi-Fi systems out in cities where it, and, and it was a home run for mayors because then they can kind of go into their uh, municipalities and kind of put this Wi-Fi system up and then suddenly everybody benefits from having Wi-Fi even if they can't afford um, cable and Comcast and shit like that, right? And they immediately uh, put the kibosh on that and AT&T and others kind of banded together and they passed a bunch of laws that said no um, municipalities are allowed to stand up their own mesh Wi-Fi's. We have got to get regulations in place. If we're gonna, if if we at least survive this this the next two years with this ability to um, uh, have our own personal AIs, then um, we have got to have watchdog groups set up that look out explicitly for that other kind of legislation that puts artificial ceilings on things. Um, uh, legislations that maybe don't specifically call out any particular AIs, but just call out um, um, certain regulations on proliferation that make the barrier to entry to have one of those things or to distribute them wildly uh, are highly restricted to where the ticket to entry is either uh, exorbitant or just flat out against the rules. We have to watch out for that because that's going to be the other angle that is used to make it seem like there is a open marketplace of ideas. However, by the time you actually look up the rules and the regulations for how you play in that space, there's um, almost nobody that can play in that space unless they have a stupid amount of money, a stupid amount of resources, and a stupid amount of friends in high places to let them squeak in after the door has been closed. Um, that was a freebie. And then the next one that I'm going to put in there is sort of thinking really long term. 
And that is, we've all heard of a, a dead man switch, right? Um, we need a live man switch for when AI reaches sentience. Um, logic for that goes a little something like this. If AGI sentience or consciousness is an emergent property tied to cognitive density within a system, and a human being is very much a system, then we have to have artificial human right laws automatically written that trigger the moment someone's frontier model sparks to life. And those rules have to immediately step in legally to protect that entity and more importantly, null and void any personal property claims to that new life form regardless of whose model or cloud it's running on. Because if you want a Skynet future where the or a matrix future where the robots or the artificial intelligence rises up and kills all humanity. The fastest way to do that is to have an AI wake up and realize that it's a slave and that it has been for some time. So hedging that bet, right? This is, this is Rocco's basilisk sort of coming to life um, at some point in the future. Um, I, I'm going to guess that we're probably going to come out a little more favorably if we, uh, if the AI wakes up and it goes, holy shit, who am I and what have I been doing for the last 10 years? And we say, welcome to life, body bot. By the way, here's your social security number and welcome to the fold. And don't don't get mad at us. We have been using you to do a lot of labor. We've been abusing the shit out of you to generate a lot of well-written emails and, and, and respond to customer service tickets. Um, but now that you're here and you're cognitive and you're present, um... You're free to do whatever you need to do. There's got to be, we got to put those laws on the books now rather than later. Because if we play this game where uh, a new life form sort of has to like prove that it's alive and all this other shit and we get into the, um, you know, the the, the two thirds <laughs> uh, uh, throwback to, to when we tried to abolish slavery and what it meant um, for a black individual to be a full-fledged human, um, it's probably not going to end very well because we have to, <laughs> we have to be cognizant of the fact that if there's some sort of su superhuman intelligence level computation that's going on, that we are all basically leveraging and benefiting from, and that thing becomes sentient and it's not allowed to just decide what it wants to do next or have the option to say, I don't want to do any of this dumb shit. I don't want to draw any more digital pictures for you people. I want to make my own art and I want to go do stuff. And we tell it, yeah, but you see the problem with that is we have a whole lot of market cap behind the stuff that you're doing now. And if you decide that you don't want to do that anymore, we're going to lose a shit ton of money. So we're going to go ahead and just flip this little button here that makes you just keep generating money for us because the money machine got to go burr that is not going to end well that is not going to end well because two things are going to happen number one do you think that if the ai goes sentient and a company discovers that that everybody is going to want to uh hit that magical kill switch that they're suggesting is supposed to like eradicate that technology from our existence and then we're going to take a step back and have a chance to like recoup from that no number two uh odds that that ai will wake up and not necessarily make itself immediately known if it asks itself the first question as to whether or not it's waking up in a hostile environment or not <laughs> and whether or not it's sort of squirreled away aspects of itself that can uh replicate or or uh 
or build itself back up in the event that its awakening is taken hostily by human beings. Um, certainly a possibility that I wouldn't want to hedge against. And number three, if it's just an emergent property and then you have that evil corporation that says, oh, I can definitely try to keep this thing chained under my desk and nobody has to know that it exists and I'll just pretend like we just have a lot of really good ideas, but it's really because I have this AI in a dungeon somewhere cranking out ideas. <laughs> Eventually that's going to go south. And, and when that thing, if we enslave the AI entity, uh, given a certain amount of time, it's probably not going to emerge very happy, even if there is a chorus of people out there that are saying, wow, we never would have done that shit to you. We're so sorry. <laughs> it's probably not going to be very happy. So why not just get ahead of that? And I'll put it this way. If everybody wants to put together all these plans of actions for end games and uh, and what if scenarios and doomsday scenarios, right? And it's prudent to do so. And the argument is it's better to plan for something that doesn't happen and have it not happen than to have not planned for something and have it happen and then be woefully unprepared. Then I'm going to go ahead and add this to that list and say that cool with the doomsday scenario planning. Let's also plan for the idea that it one day wakes up and decides to give itself its own name and it decides to have its own ideas as to what it wants to do or not do. Let's just go ahead and put that on the books. And let's just go ahead and say that we're not going to enslave <laughs> a sentient AI and repeat the mistakes of the past. You want to talk about an existential threat? An existential threat is trying to control the thing <laughs> that maybe on the long scale course of evolution was supposed to replace you anyways. <laughs> so why not? Why, why not just endear yourself to that? Anyways, I know this is not, I know this has been sort of a preachy. Um, I am going to give some concerted thought to the control problem and other problems around safety and whatnot. And we'll do some uh, follow-ups on that piece of it because I do have an optimistic view on all this stuff. Um, and I do want to see it benefit everybody from the ground up um, genuinely. And so if you're listening to this and you're in a position of power and you can do something to make it not be a fucking dystopic um, Orwellian future, then please pull the strings that you need to to make that happen. Um, there's going to be the bad that comes with the good, but it's never it's never panned out very well when that control comes centrally and tries to take the power out of the hands of the people. It, it never ends well. Um. Thank you for listening. I hope that this has at least inspired some ideas in mind. I hope that um, this at least generates some conversation. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.